Good morning. So I got good news and bad news. If you're here this morning, it means you're not on vacation. And so, so sorry, but we get to open up God's Word this morning. If you're online, welcome. We're, we're finishing up First Peter today. So we're in chapter 5. So find First Peter chapter 5, and then just for your preparation for next week, we're going to be going back to John. We're going to pick up right where we left off. So John 15, if you want to incorporate, and I would urge you, since we always study through books of the Bible, you always know what's coming in your sermons. And so I would urge you to go back in John. Just don't stop in, in chapter 15. Back up a little bit and study that text along with me this week, and then we'll all be prepared to look at it as we, as we come next week. Uh, I would urge you to, just a little word um, before we stand, um, just as I was worshiping there, um, just a little pastoral exhortation. Be careful in these days of division, um, be it with our own denomination as Southern Baptist or anything else, to constantly listen to people who make their living on YouTube and the radio criticizing other pastors and churches. I would just encourage you to not listen to that. I don't. Sometimes I'll turn it on just to see, but I usually, I'm not going to swim in that. Um, one of the things that, and, uh, that I will be doing in the future and I will try to do a better job as, as if there's something that needs to be addressed that's this going on in the culture of our day, I will address it from the pulpit to you as a people to let you know how, what is the biblical response to, to things like critical race theory and, and different things going on even in our own convention and how we are going to charge. But brothers and sisters, we must spend most of our time diving into the truth so that we may identify what is wrong. And, and so let's do that now. First uh, Peter 5, stand with me in honor of God's Word. I'm just going to read um, to the guys in the back. I'm just going to read through the first five verses to get us started this morning. First Peter 5, verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Lord, as we have gathered ourselves together, whether we are looking at this online or sitting here, Lord, we are in desperate need of your unifying grace, of the grace that brings both wisdom to our minds to apply into our lives. There are things that are clouding us today, and yet we have heard for the last two weeks that we need to be sober-minded. So clear our minds, Lord, so that we may hear your truth. And then, Holy Spirit, would you apply this into our life so that we may live, no matter the situation and circumstances of our life. I pray for our leaders today. 
that you would put a zeal in them, a spirit-filled zeal for the gospel and for your people that you purchase with the precious blood of your Son. Comfort, encourage, equip us today. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So if you look at back at 1 Peter, I love our Bibles. They help, God, men have helped us and women have helped us so much understand our Bibles better just by looking at it. You have these headings in your Bible so that you can sort of flip back and sort of remind yourself very quickly on what we have looked at. We, Peter is, is talking to a people that are suffering. He is reminding them, if we look in chapter 1, of, of who they are and what they're called to do. In chapter 2, he sort of does the same thing again. He reminds them who they are. And then he begins to talk about how do we respond? How do we live life? How do we live under authority? How do we live as married couples? How do we suffer well? What do we do? What do we say in the midst of suffering? And then last week, we said it is critical on this Christian journey that we've been talking about to have some resolves, some decisions that you have made up front before the, before the suffering comes and before life begins to happen so that we might live reflecting our Lord. And this is no more important in times of conflict or suffering in our life. Like we said, everybody is, you're either coming out from one or about to go into one. So prepare yourself. But have you ever noticed this? I'm talking about believers now. That believers, I would say, what's the gospel? What's the gospel? What's the gospel? What's the gospel? To any age group in here. And we may articulate the exact same thing, but yet we do not always see the life in front of us the same way. Right? We don't respond the same way. We've heard it said over the generations, there is a generation gap between those that are younger and those that are older. The, the way they see life, I would call this either an attitude or even the posture of the heart as you go through this journey. It affects the way you see. It is affecting what you are hearing and how you're interpreting what I hear right now. I've noticed this in my home as we've got kids that are in their 20s now and as we talk to our older kids, they are adults now, not children. And they would tell me some of the things that I used to say when they were younger. I thought I was encouraging them, right? Come on, fight, stand up, live in light of eternity. And, and come to find out, it scared them to death. Because they didn't know about their future. They didn't know what they was going to do with their life. But they really wanted to live life. And here we were talking about Jesus about to come back, you know. And they were sitting there going, well, what about college? And what about family and it was their attitude, their posture. Here's just the reality. The younger you are, the more you have a tendency to say in the posture of your heart, life is all about me. And, and think about it. When you're first saved, what do you want to do? You want to grow, right? I may not be thinking about Mike as much. I'm saying, I want, I want to grow. And that's a good thing. We need to grow. But what happens is you begin to spiritually mature. I've been, I start meeting with other people. I'm concerned about their growth. You see? 
the, the posture of the heart begins to mature. And as it matures, it begins to change. And suddenly, you'll begin to realize, life is bigger than just me. <laughs> right? That's right. It's, it's from, it's from the, the child to the adult. Parents cannot afford to say life is all about me. These postures are often subconscious. That's why I talked about resolutions last week. Because if we don't make them, you will set them anyway. And when life happens, you'll just respond. Let's just give a couple of for instances. And if you've lived long enough, most of these have already happened in your life. How do you respond, or how would you respond, from the time you were younger to the time you were older, if someone in your family took their own life? Many of us have had that happen multiple times. How would, how would a person with one posture respond versus another? They would take that event and they immediately internalize it into themselves. They would immediately, well, what about me? What if this would happen to me? This was my friend and this trauma and this event happened to, to me. But if you're a little bit mature, who does the first, some of the first people you think about when those events happen? What about, the, what about the spouse? What about the family? You know, that, that's where your mind goes. I mean, what do we do when, when someone goes down like just happened to me? The next thing you know, we set up a, a, what do you call it, a food chain, right? We start sending meals. You start blessing the other people because you know how it affects the whole family. This is what we're, just think about this. You remember when you were young and single and your first friend got married, right? You, you know you should have been happy for them. But was you really happy? You were really sort of jealous. Right? Dang, come it. I've been waiting forever. They didn't even want to get married and they're getting married. By goodness, I'm working at Taco Bell and my friend just got a high-paying dream job. Should be happy for him. But all I can think about is, I didn't get that. My friend, my friend got a full ride to college. And my parents are going to have to take out a loan to send me to college. This is the posture of our heart. Peter's addressing this. He is teaching us today that whether you are a leader in the church or whether you're the youngest among us, we all have a tendency. And he wants to encourage us, to exhort us in times of suffering. You got your main idea if you got their notes. God's people must be led by Christ-like examples. That's the first part. But then, God's people must respond in humility. And here's what I want us to If you don't get anything else, when I get there, I'm going to say it again. We have a common enemy. Listen, and it's not each other. The elders work. The elders work. If you're taking notes, I put this beside of mine. As I'm, I would write the elders' tendency it's not just their work. He's addressing sometimes whether you're a leader in the church or whether you're the youngest and the most immature among us, we all have a tendency. And so he's exhorting. Look at verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. So what he, who he is talking to is not older people. Who he is speaking to are the elders of the church. That word is where we get the word presbytery. They're plural. This is an office, not an age. 
These are those in the times of crisis that the people look to. Peter speaks from authority. Do you see that? He calls himself a fellow elder. I am a witness to the sufferings of Christ, and I'm a partaker just like you. He speaks from authority, and he's exhorting. You see that word exhort? It's the word we get when we talk about the Holy Spirit, and we call him our advocate. He's our paraclete. That's that word. He, he comes along beside of us to encourage us and to urge us and to comfort us. That's the word that he's doing. That's the word exhort. He exhorts the spiritual leaders in order to encourage them in times of suffering. I'm going to show you this little booklet. It's out there in the pastor's corner. It's called Biblical Eldership. I don't have time to get into this in detail this morning. But if, you, if, you've, if this is a new concept, and it is for many Southern Baptists, I would urge you to... To just grab that, you can read it in just a matter of minutes. But it was a big help for me in years gone by. We're, we stand on this as a church. Shared leadership is biblical leadership. Shared leadership. We have a first, what we call a first among equals. That is me as your lead pastor. But, but we, we work together because we, there's not only a reality of elders in Scripture, there is an importance of elders in Scripture. And that is for, our, for wisdom, unity, and accountability. Don't have time to get into that? Read the booklet. Let's look at the context of this. The context, remember, is the people are suffering. And you know this if you're a parent. When one of these big life events happens in your family's life, the people in your family look to a leader for direction. Do, do we see this in our country when there, there's some kind of turmoil, when buildings fall and, and countries attack? We look for strong leadership. If we don't see it, we criticize the leaders. Where's your leaders? We do that because we're looking for leadership. The people are too. And so he encourages them. Look at chapter 4, verse 19. This was the summary, remember, of chapter 4. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. They're suffering. And so he is reminding that the spiritual leaders in the church have an important role in the midst of this, the role of biblical leaders. If you're taking notes, you can write down this. Verses 2 to 4 gives us three primary responsibilities of the elders. One is shepherding, the other is overseeing, and the next is modeling. Shepherd, overseer, model. I'm just going to focus on shepherding because to some degree, you could look at Psalms 23, for instance, and sort of get this picture that a shepherd has all of those roles sort of combined into one. A shepherd had to lead, he had to guide, he had to rule. But he did it in a particular way. So I just want to look, in light of shepherding, I want you to see that our spiritual leaders must be humble shepherds. They must be humble. This is the flavor of the whole text. Verses 2 to 3 is all couched in humility. In verse 5, we'll see that he backs up and exhorts everybody now. You must be humble. And if, I, if the people must live in humility, what must the elders be? They must be humble shepherds. The elders are not the bosses. They, they, don't, they don't take this ministry on so they can boss people other, around. They take this ministry on because God calls them to be a Christ-like example to people. 
And there's no more important time than that than in times of difficulty. They are humble, but they are also willing. Look at this word here. He, Peter sort of gives this sort of from a negative perspective here of what shepherds really shouldn't be to show us what we should do. Verse 2, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion. That word compulsion means to be forced. It means to be just merely obligated. An elder is not somebody that just says, well, they need me, so I'll do it. This comes from God. Do you see that? As God would have you do it. You're an elder because you can't do anything else in being God's will. You have to. It's the same call that God puts on our life in other areas. But first most for the spiritual leaders in the church. It's not a compulsion. They're not under a sense of merely obligated. There must be a wholehearted desire to do this. They are generous. You see that, verse 2? They don't do this for what the Bible calls here shameful gain. This is really just one word. It's meant to contrast with another word. If you look up at verse 2, the word shameful gain is one word that contrasts against the word eagerly. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. You could say it this, not in greed, but in freedom. That word eagerly can mean free. This means this, he's encouraging them. You are not leading these people to get anything from this. You don't do it for power. You don't do it for ego. You don't do it for money. Let me just say this because it's true. I've been around a block a time or two, and most some of you have too. I don't know about other areas of the country, but in this area, family-run churches are epidemic. They're epidemic. They're the, the, the people that have been there the longest that give the most. And they know they can leave the church and take 40% of the budget with them. And so they, they start the power. They control the church. Listen, this is dangerous. People who do that have no fear of God. This is the worst reason to be a leader. You do not lead anyone because you're trying to control something or someone. You do it because God calls you to do it. And you do it in humility out of a spirit of a willing, a generous heart. This is the constant reminder of Scripture to the elders. Turn with me to Acts 20. Another passage where Paul is speaking to the elders. You see, by the way, the Bible assumes elders if you read it. The Bible has more to say about elders than it does about deacons. Here Paul is speaking to the elders. Acts 20, 28. Pay careful attention to yourself and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Do you see that? Why has the Holy Spirit made you an overseer? To care for the church that belongs to God, which He obtained with His own blood. That's what church of God means. It's God's church. He purchased her. She's His. And the Spirit tells you, care for her, she's mine. That is the means, the way we come. And so, we also see in verse 3 that these spiritual leaders in times of suffering must be tender. Must be tender. 
He used it there again in a, in a negative light. He says, not domineering over those in your charge. That word domineering means to overpower. It means to rule over. It can even mean in some contexts like an emperor rules over his kingdom. Instead, we shepherd like Christ. Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29, you know this text. Jesus says this, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Leadership is meant to lead God's people to rest, to comfort them. And so their leadership must be a visible leadership. A visible leadership. They must be examples to the flock. You see that? Verse 3. They're following Christ. But they need some... You've, we've heard, heard many times, I know you have, that we need sometimes Jesus with skin on. How do I respond in this? People immediately look to their spiritual leaders. Let's look at a passage. This is not in your notes. Colossians 3.12. I just chose this because we, we looked at this last week. I just want to apply it here again. Colossians 3, verse 12. Speaking to the church now. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. You see, if this is the command for the church, then it is your spiritual leaders that model this, and they must model it in a way that is above reproach. This is why when we read Timothy and Titus, we see that most of the qualities of an elder are qualities of character, not skill or performance. Why accent these? It's because all spiritual leaders have a tendency. And I know, parents, you don't ever feel this way. You ever feel like, you know, today, don't feel like being in charge. <laughs> I don't feel like leading today. I don't want to give today. I want to consume today. <laughs> I want somebody to give to me. I don't have anything left to give. You ever felt that way? I'm tired. I'm frustrated. Why don't they listen? I don't want to be an example today. Moms, ever not really want to be a mom today? We all have a tendency. And so do these brothers leading the church. They have a tendency, so they need to be encouraged not only in their roles, but also because there is a reward. Look at verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This is a sermon. I just want you to focus on the chief shepherd. You see that? Chief shepherd. When the chief shepherd appears, why does he say it? that way so he's reminding them 
Listen, there is great reward and remarkable joy for those who take care of the people of God. But it's in the next life and not in this life. So what you need to do is just follow the chief shepherd. He is reminding every spiritual leader that fundamentally we are all servants. We are all servants. The elders have a tendency, so they need to be encouraged. And notice how long that is. And now, you see, we see that the younger has a tendency. The younger has a tendency. It says in verse 5, notice it's just one sentence. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. So here's the question. Why warn the younger? All right? Why that one sentence right there? That younger could be age. It could be spiritual maturity. You could say this. You, you better. <laughs> you, you best. You best have spiritual leaders who are mature. Right? In the faith. But he warns those on the other end of the spectrum, those who may be more immature. Why? The same reason. Because they have a tendency. I would encourage you, especially if you're a young man, or if you have a young man, this is by J.C. Ryle. It's called Thoughts for Young Men. He is not talking about young men here. He is talking to them. By the way, books have a context just like sermons do and, and conversations do. That's an important one. You don't talk at people. You talk to them. Here's what he says to young people. If you talk to any honest pastor, any honest parent, or any honest policeman, and you ask them who has created for them the greatest burden of ministry who has pushed against them the most, who fills up the prisons and walks away from their families, then they will all tell you uncategorically, it is the young men. So he speaks directly to them, encouraging them. Because the greatest hope for the future and the family and the church is young men. Why do people write books like this? It's because young people have a tendency to not want to submit to authority. And so did we. And sometimes we still do. You see, there's overlap here. <laughs> not, a, not a clean line where one stops and the other starts. The exhortation to the young people in the churches. Trust your leaders because God's ordained them. Trust them. See, just as the pastor, pastors have a primary responsibility to shepherd the flock, so do the members have the responsibility of submission to their spiritual leaders. Hebrews 13, 17 says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who are given account, and let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be no advantage to you. This is an actual illustration of a pastor in a church. The pastor says, let's go pray for our neighborhood. Sounds fairly simple, doesn't it? Somebody comes up to him after that and says, we ain't doing it. 
me and my family not going to do it. I'm not participating. I think it's just a really bad idea. The Bible nowhere tells me that I'm supposed to walk around my community and pray for people. You know, so the pastor scratches his metaphorical head for there for just a second, not his actual one, and and says, well, can I ask you some questions? Yes. Do you believe in evangelism? Yes. Do you desire your community to be saved? Yes, of course. Do you believe in intercessory prayer? Oh, yeah. The Bible teaches that. So I said, well, we are intercessory praying for our community to be open to the gospel so that they might be saved. I don't care. I ain't doing it. Right? So, so let me read God's word over that. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls. And let them do this with joy and not with groaning. You know what that made me do? Groan. I just told you it happened to me, didn't I? It happens. You see, here's the point. They didn't disagree with the point of doctrine or theology. They just didn't like the idea. So they're going to take their marbles and they ain't going to play in the sandbox. That's exactly what Scripture is teaching against. This submissive is a command. As much as it is a command for God's spiritual leaders to lead the way He, Christ led us. So we must be submissive. This is simply a spirit of cooperation in the mission of God. So here's the point. Wherever you are, and however you've seen this up to a point, because remember we have these subconscious things that's going on right now. You go back to the generation gap. Here's my point. We both have a tendency. The most mature and the most immature and everybody in between, no matter where you think you are, we have a tendency. And so we need to realize that we have a common enemy. A common enemy. Before he gets to the common enemy, I want you to see his common exhortation. So he, he backs up now, and he's not speaking to just elders. He's not just speaking to the younger. He's speaking to everybody within the church. And here's, what's, here's what we all need commonly. Humble yourself, verse 6, therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Verse 7, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. We see first in verse 6 that the common encouragement for all of us, no matter who we are, is to humble ourselves under God, you see, under God. The elders are not God. They're shepherds. They're His servants that are required to lead biblically His people, equipping the saints for the work of ministry. But we all humble ourselves. How do we do that? A lot of things we could say, but let's just work with the text. You humble yourself before God by casting all your anxieties on Him. <laughs> Here's the truth. Your parents, look at me. You're not easy to follow. It's not always easy to be one of your kids. I could, some of the kids ought to give me an amen for that one. Right? It's not easy to be one of my children. And all of them would testify to that. And I'm not an easy pastor to follow all the time. 
I haven't always been a very good boss. And I was that for 30 years. It, it makes us afraid to follow people sometimes. You trust the Lord with your fears. That's how we humble ourselves. It's an action, you see. It's not cerebral. It's not just sitting going, okay, God, I humble myself before you right now. No, no, no. Humility takes an action. That word means to throw something on somebody else. Cast it. <laughs> and cast it and keep on casting it. Throw it. It's a deliberate decision of trust. It is the child at the edge of the swimming pool that won't drop unless they trust you. It's that deliberate decision. Worry, you see, is our common enemy. It is a sense of pride that believes I would just rather do it myself on my own than to trust anybody else's instructions. Our motivation and our non-negotiable cares for you there are no perfect leaders there are no perfect church members there is no perfect church there's only a perfect God that cares for us all he cares for us listen the language is so important he says I care for you and I'm going to keep on caring for you and I am never going to stop caring for you so trust me and trust the leaders that I ordained you see that? It's the way it works in Scripture. Philippians 4, verse 6 says this, Don't be anxious about anything. Notice this. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. The result and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds. The result of humble trusting is a quiet confidence. It has the ability to lay down things that scare us, that worry us, and that plagues our minds. We have one common enemy, and it is our pride. But we have another one. And it is dangerous to discount him. Look at verse 8. He said all of that to remind everybody of these two things, to remind them about their tendency towards pride and to remind them that they have a common enemy be sober minded be watchful your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour now before we get into this we need to understand why has he said everything that he's already said when a pastor fails to lead and or members refuse to follow, it naturally opens up the door for Satan in the church. That's what he's teaching the church today. That when you push against God-given authority, or you fail to lead as God has called us to lead, the result is an open frontal attack by the enemy with no one to stand the gate. So here's the message in verse 8. Wake up. That's what he's saying. Wake up. Be sober-minded. That's the second time he said that. Remember? said it again in the last chapter. Be watchful. C.S. Lewis said, There's two mistakes that Christians make in talking about Satan. 
We either joke about him or we ignore him. And either one could be fatal. For you individually or the church collectively, you have an enemy. And it is not somebody who is not your same age or race or culture. It is the evil one who tries to make us take up these issues that are not biblical issues and divide over them. Your enemy is the devil. Notice he's our adversary. You see that word? It means he's our accuser. He's your opponent. He is not for you. If you're not a believer here today, Satan is not for you. He is against you and he desires to have your soul. The picture is that he is praying. He is a hunter. He is hunting for people. He is hunting for souls. And he is an equal opportunity destroyer. He does not differentiate because of age. He's our enemy. The word devil actually means slanderer. Think about this. He's an accuser. He's a slanderer. You remember last week when people persecute you? What do they normally start at? Your character. Wonder why they do that. Because that's exactly what the devil does. He wants to destroy souls. He seeks them. And listen, Christian, if he can't have your soul, he will keep you isolated, miserable, and defeated. That's his goal. Ephesians 6, 16, I think you know this. It says that the devil shoots at you what he calls fiery darts. Ones that only faith can deal with. What might that look like in your life? Mine. Here's one. If you ever had some father troubles in your past, here's one. You're not enough and you never will be. The doubt that will never go away. What if you fail? All this is just a waste of time. I'm alone. I'm the only one that feels this way. Nobody knows. Nobody cares. Arrows. He's saying you better be alert. Remember last week? Be alert and pray. This week, be alert and trust Him. That word alert, we could even say it this way. Be courageous and trust Him. We're saying when we tell somebody, remember Joshua, to be courageous, that this is not easy. This life's not easy. This war is not easy. It is far easier to quit. But I want you to get, I started to bring me a, a weapon up here this morning, a knife or a sword or something. I didn't want to offend anybody, so I didn't. But imagine, I got a, a weapon up here with me. Here's what he wants you to do. Let me give you an illustration. We, we went to warfare. He's got that sort of in his mind here, and Paul does all the time. You're, you're on the front lines of a fight. you got buddies on both sides of you, and what's about to happen to you, you're right on the front end of an anxiety attack. Right? Now imagine, you're trying to use this, this weapon. And you're about to have a full-fledged panic attack. If you're about to have a panic attack, what are you not going to be able to do? Fight. 
And not only are you putting yourself in jeopardy, you're putting your buddies in jeopardy because there's an enemy in front of us, and if we're going to whoop him, we need to whoop him together. That's as plain as illustration I can give you this morning about the text. Whether you were young or whether you were old, we're all in this fight together, and we have a common enemy, and it's not each other. And we must fight it, and we must fight it together. We lay down our anxieties so that we might fight, so that we might live. Not so that we might just survive. Resist him. You see it? That's what we do with the devil. We resist him. That word means to be hostile against someone. We're not called to passivity. Quit telling your little boys they're not supposed to fight. They are supposed to fight. We're just supposed to fight for some things and some people. Resist him. He's saying, fight. Fight. Certain things we run from. We don't have time for those. Saying here, resist him. How? Your faith. With your faith. Your faith, this is solid. You see, firm in your faith. That's something unshakable. It's unshakable because God gives it to you. It's not passive. There's nothing passive about this text. He's calling us. You can look at Matthew 16. Jesus says the same thing. Peter's just telling him, telling us, telling the church what Jesus already taught him. Matthew 16, verse 13. This is what it teaches us. Read it and read it slowly because most of us have been taught that we are supposed to climb into our little ivory towers and our walls behind there and try to hold back the devil. No. We are called to gain ground on the evil one. Is it not our Jesus who lived, died, and rose again and ascended to the right hand of God and coming again in glory? Is that not who we follow? We are called together to gain ground on the evil one and His will not be able to prevail. The church will advance and we will advance together. We are called to make a frontal assault on the kingdom of darkness. And we do not do this alone. We do it with the power of the Spirit in each other. Young and old, we have a common enemy. It is our own pride, and it is the devil. But praise the Lord, we have a common restore. A common restore. Verse 10, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you into eternal glory, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Speaks to the church. At the proper time, as a Christian, if you want to really get understand your Bibles, you've got to understand there's both a now and a not yet. Ultimately, Peter is pointing to the end. <laughs> there is a time where we will be completely restored, completely confirmed, completely strengthened. But there's a not yet about this as well. God Himself, what, is, what does He give the Christian today? He gives you saving grace. He gives you sanctifying grace and He will give you glorifying grace. Psalms 46. Micah's already read it. God is our refuge and strength. He's an ever-present help in times of trouble. He's a present help. This word restore means to set a bone. If He doesn't set it, it won't grow back right. Your arm won't restore right. You won't be able to use it. His point is that we will be active they are suffering. They just want it to end. 
He is reminding them that in this life we will suffer, but God will make things right. God moves in our life right now. Can I give you an illustration? Peter, the one who's writing this book, do you remember what he did? He denied the Lord. Do you remember? Luke twenty-two thirty-one. Jesus says this, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith will not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen the brothers. Did not the Lord himself restore Peter? And it's not Peter right now to you and to the church doing exactly what God prayed that he would do. Strengthen the brothers. That's what we're called to do. We are imperfect people who lead imperfectly, who follow imperfectly. But we have a common things. We have common enemies and we have a common restorer Jesus Christ our Lord. So we end this time in Hebrews. We end this time in Hebrews and then I'm going to sing a little bit in the same thought. Hebrews 12. We've been saying so that get it to the end. Let me, let me just read this comes after the heroes of the faith chapter in Hebrews 11 therefore since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the rates that is set before us so so that this morning so that we might run the race together together the picture here is that the Christian life is not some individual race that you were running. You ever been in a sack race? Right? You are running a race, and you are inseparably yoked to somebody that's in the same bag as you. And they normally don't run as fast as you. They don't run like you. They don't, they don't have the same mind. The only people who win the race who can get in sync with each other we are people who are connected by the blood of Christ to each other. We are not meant to run the race alone. We're a race in a, in a sack with each other. And here's what he's saying. Got rocks in your sack. You got things that we are bringing to the race that is tying us up, that is binding us. The picture of is the Greek Olympic Games where they ran, guess what? With nothing holding them back. I heard one little rumor, you know how it is, that things get started, you never know whether it's truth or not, that one of the guys in the Olympic Games was running and he's chipped over his loincloth, so he just threw it off. From there on, everybody ran with nothing on. I don't know if that's true or not. That's the image. I want to run in a way where my, my past or anything in my present or the fear of the future does not hold me back. And I'm willing to stop and help you deal with your stuff so that we can run the race together. Whatever it takes. However long it takes. The greatest thing that we are going to is holding us back today is fear. And every person has it. Young people, you are just fearful of different things than the old people. 
We all struggle with that. It is the thing that keeps us from doing oftentimes the things that we know we want to do. It is the things that's keeping you from leaving some habits and some actions and some people behind that you need to leave behind. And so, this is comforting to me. Look at Hebrews 12 and we're done. The elders are not your prime example to follow in the race. Look at verse 2. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the same, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him. Consider him this morning, who endured for sinners such hostility against himself. Why? Do you see it? So that you may not grow faint or weary. So in light of our Lord, who suffered what He suffered, for the glory that was before Him and for our redemption, in light of those who have went before us, firm in their faith, let us trust our sovereign Lord. Let us fight together. Let us live together. Let us rest together. Because to this we have been called. Verse 11, 1 Peter says to this, To Christ be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. So, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these wonderful letters written to the church that we can now enjoy. And so, Lord, it comes now to us to respond. We respond in our prayers now. We respond sometimes in ways that other people can't even hear or see. Lord, if we need to resolve some things with you now, even before we go to the tables, let us do that. Let us respond at the tables, remembering that it was the chief shepherd who sacrificed, bled, and died, and rose again so that we might be in your family, so that we might be one people. Thank you that the victory is won. But Lord, you know that there's still a lot of fighting going on here. Sometimes within ourselves and sometimes with others. So Lord, may this place be a place where we can breathe a sigh of release and rest. A place where you patch up the holes in our armor we can encourage each other all the more as we see the day approaching. Lord, we worship you, but we worship you with our outstretched hands because we are in need of your restoring, strengthening, and confirming grace right now in our life. And so, Lord, do what you have promised to do. And as you do, we will fear you and we will worship you and we will obey you no matter the cost. Be glorified in this place in Jesus' name. Amen.